Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode to find a link where you will subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Pommen, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at the Acton Institute. This week, we'll discuss Jimmy Lai's conviction on fraud charges in Hong Kong and is Christmas too commercialized? But first, let's jump on Twitter don't actually do that because, once again, I want to recommend to people the best advice you can possibly get is don't tweet. Uh, but we have had, over the course of about a week now, the release of what is being called the Twitter files, which are these internal documents that uh, uh, assuredly Elon Musk was able to uh, gather up now that he owns Twitter and has been distributing them around to different journalists, uh, which I, I do also find the selection of who is releasing these to be interesting. The first set were released by Matt Taibbi, um, who I remember reading Matt Taibbi back in like 2008 and 2009 on the financial crisis stuff and just thinking – he is absolutely wrong on so very, very much. And if you would tell me that I would come around to actually, you know, subscribing to Matt Taibbi's Substack, which I do, uh, I wouldn't have believed you back then. But, you know, it is uh, the year of our Lord 2022 and things got very, very weird. But also Barry Weiss has released uh, some of them. And everybody has their own interpretation on what these uh, the, these stories mean, what they confirm, and the conclusions that you can draw from it. And I think the, the one that has, has stuck out to me is, I believe it was in the stuff that was released by Barry Weiss, that confirms what was largely perceived to be a reality, that shadow banning, as it has been called, is an actual thing, that conservatives, people on the right who were on Twitter, who believed that they were being de-emphasized within the algorithm, uh, that the way that things would normally, the algorithm would propel certain very popular things forward and, and help continue that, uh, that, that propulsion of interest and popularity of that message that they were being purposefully tamped down in the algorithm. And it has now essentially been confirmed. And I think one of the sources of what is going to drive people really crazy about this is the way the narrative will be constructed around how we talk about this. That back then, when conservatives, people on the right who are on Twitter, would make the case that shadow banning is a thing that happens – they were being told, it was like, you're crazy. That's not actually happening. It's, it's, this isn't reality. And now that we know that it was happening, the narrative that I have seen being answered with is, well, of course, we all knew that this was happening, and actually it's a good thing. Um, so it, in a way, it becomes a media narrative question, even more so than the substance of what was actually going on there. But it does raise questions, not as some people on the right I have been advancing. David French actually wrote a, a good piece at The Atlantic about this, that this is not a First Amendment issue. There is no obligation on from a private company or even a publicly traded company at the time to adhere to the First Amendment. They are not the government. However, there is a culture of free speech question 
that revolves around all of this. So that is some setup of some of what is in the Twitter files. And I will just open it up to either you, Dan, or Dylan, whoever wants to jump in with what have you seen here? Because this is like this, as we were talking about before we started, this thing is like a pinata. You can hit it from just about any angle and you'll get some reward from it. So pick your angle, swing the stick and, and hit it. So I'm, I'm going to start out with a weird one, which is format. <clears throat> so I don't know. I Maybe further along the line, there will be actual stories written about these things. But the way that they were released were these... Uh, massive tweet threads by Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss. And it is excruciating to read. It, it If this is the future of journalism, the future of journalism is just like stylistically terrible. Um, <laughs> you have these threads and maybe, and maybe this just goes to show, you know, uh, how much of journalism is, is a craft. Um, when you read a story... Maybe the sourcing is as sort of thin and arbitrary as it appears in a tweet thread and a story, but there's just a way that it's finessed and coheres into an actual story um, that makes reading it think that you know more than you do. Because what I was left with both of these was a lot more questions than answers. Um, And you also had folks retweeting different portions of this thread that they all, you know, were either objecting to or wanting to amplify. So what you don't have um, in sort of online discussion of this is any discussion of the whole. You have these particular... Either, either individuals who were highlighted, who had whose uh, sort of algorithmic reach was throttled in some way. You had uh, particular individuals at Twitter involved in internal discussions and like portions of memos. But what's very interesting is this isn't um, these aren't the Twitter files. It is not as if Elon Musk, uh, you know, gathered together this data and released it on a GitHub that we can all go through and review what Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss have evidently been able to review. Um, So it's very hard to have an, you know, I got done reading these and I, I, you know, I was like Marvin in Pulp Fiction. You know, I'm like, I don't, man, I don't even have an opinion (laughs) Um, because I don't even know what I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, It's, it's very, very strange. And it was evidently designed to be so. As, as part of this is Elon Musk wants to offer greater transparency, all these sorts of things. That's part of it. But he also wants to use this as a showcase for Twitter as a news delivery medium. One of the conditions, in fact, I think both Taibbi and Weiss had said the only condition on the stories that they wrote were that they were originally tweeted out. And I think that's a disservice to everyone reading them just because um, of all the things of all the things I talked about earlier. And uh, I am I'm, I'm less convinced than ever that Twitter is is the future of news. Um, those links that people share in their tweets are still really, really important for grasping the ideas. And uh, I, I think there was recently uh, some talk about. Uh, Musk considering expanding the character numbers in Twitter, uh, going from uh, 
a micro blogging client to a sort of medium blogging client. Yes. Um, and uh, I think I think if 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 news delivery is to have a future on Twitter, I think that's going to be necessary. So I I have a similar reaction, at least to the first part of that, in that you, know, you use the metaphor of a pinata. I mean, I think we've we've punctured a few holes and a few bits of candy have dropped out, but uh, a vast majority of it just remains in the pinata. And it's a little ironic that the whole goal seems to be transparency, and yet all we're getting is a few anecdotal accounts of, look, libs of TikTok was you know suppressed or whatever, which. Okay, I guess that's a story because people were saying, no, it's not being shadow banned or whatever, you know, fine. But, you know, three examples of right wing, you know, suppression of right wing accounts tells us really nothing about the whole. I, give me a spreadsheet of all the accounts. And, they're, you know, you have these tags. It seems like you could pretty, probably pretty easily produce such a thing. Different categories where they, you know, um, I can't remember the, the technical terms, but what where they search blacklisted, where they, uh, you know, trend blacklisted, you know, all these sorts of things, get put it out there and then people can evaluate, oh, is there a trend towards doing this to only right-wing accounts? Or is it kind of mixed, actually, and it depended a lot more on circumstances and situations, that sort of thing? Um, so, there, I mean, that's one side of it. I also agree that, like, tweet threads... To me, the, the whole point of Twitter, I, I think it was a mistake, actually. So I disagree with the last part of what Dan said. I think it was a mistake to go from 140 characters to 280. I think it should have stayed at 140 because the whole point was write a sentence and then link to something for people to read, not give people something to read. Uh, it is incredibly cumbersome to read people's long threads. They usually, whether they want to or not, come off as pretentious um, because it's like, really, you couldn't just say five words and give me a link or whatever, you know, um, it's, it's look how smart I am. I have to tweet 26 times, uh, and I have to expect you to read every single one. 26 um, is low for, yeah, I'm trying to remember the guys, there's some professor out there who was a big anti-Trump, uh, character who would like have like hundreds, like, you know, 175 tweets in a thread, which again, clearly the pretension level of all of that is off right. the charts. And I think even well-intended, you know, it, it just ends up yeah, I, I, I don't want to sound too judgmental. Um, I mean, I, I do tweet. I am on Twitter. Um, but I, if you want to read my opinion about something, I, I will write an essay and I'll let an ed- editor decide whether or not that essay should be published. Um, or I'll write an academic paper, in which case it's not just an editor. It's, it's pure, you know, reviewers and that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's a better use of my time. I think it's a better use of any academic's time. Um, and frankly, I think it's a better use of journalist time to write actual journal, you know, newspaper, whatever, articles. Um, uh, rather, that, that can be crafted, you know, as Dan mentioned, just the, the format alone. Um, it might be, and it probably is the case, that Barry Weiss and uh, Matt Taibbi have more information and that what they're tweeting out is just representative, you know, so hopefully they're basing it on more Um but it just comes off as this weird, random, like, rant uh, with a few, like, oddly blurry screenshots. Like, not screenshots, but it looked like pictures of a screen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like someone took their phone out, took a picture of a screen instead of pushing print screen on their key. You know, so it's like, did a boomer take this picture? <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, everything about it seems 
just weird and wrong. Um, and then, so uh, the other side of things is, is it has been mixed messaging. I do think there is maybe like a little bit of gaslighting of people saying, well, no, people knew all along and you shouldn't care. And this was actually good. Uh, but there was like, there was, there, what the problem was is there was mixed messaging. If, if to the extent that I understand it and followed the story, that in like 2018, they were saying, no, 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 we don't shadow ban people, but we do suppress people's accounts. <laughs> like, so basically, they, they're saying we, we do that, but we just don't use that word, um, which is why you get this weird sort of, whether intentional or not, kind of gaslighting today, where people are like, no, no, see, like it was all fine, or everybody told you it was happening. Well, they kind of did and they kind of didn't. Um, it was just, I think, to be charitable, it was just a very bad PR handling of the situation a few years ago. Um, so I don't know. I, I'd like to see more. I, on, on the flip side of all of this, um, from what I can tell, Twitter is just as toxic as it's always been. And whether or not Elon Musk owned it doesn't seem to matter. Whether or not you try to suppress terrible accounts doesn't seem to matter. Um, I don't know that it's possible to have any sort of platform as wide-reaching as Twitter, uh, even with the best content moderation, whether it be some kind of AI perfect algorithm or a team of a thousand nerds or whatever, um, there's just going to be awful people saying awful things by, by, by its nature. I just don't think that you're ever getting around that. So... I guess my take is I kind of don't care about any of this. Well, <laughs> I know it's like a big developing news story, but I'm kind of like I don't have enough information to care. And a lot of things people really care about this sort of stuff, I just haven't cared that much about in the first place. So. I'm I'm just taken by how utterly unimportant I think all of this actually is. And I, I the story that best illustrates that for me is all of the hubbub around the New York Post's story on Hunter Biden's laptop, which like even people who are fit to be tied about this. And I think there are reasons to think that the way Twitter handled it was bad. The New York Post is the New York Post, right? It, it is a tabloidy newspaper. It has a center-right editorial page. It, however, it is a legitimate newspaper and it has done good investigative journalism. It's just obscured to some people because it is the kind of publication who is most famous for the headline headless body and topless bar, right? That is just their approach to the way that they present news. And you understand them in context to uh, – or in contrast – like the New York Times, if you are a New Yorker and you are waiting for the train, you pick up a newspaper, like the choice between the New York Times, depending on how hoity-toity you are, the New York Post or the Daily News. Um, but the interesting thing about it to me that everybody seems to miss is Twitter's banning of that story from being shared brought it more attention, not suppressed attention to the story. You can still go outside of Twitter and go to the New York Post and find the story. It was still um, – it was suppressed for a while on Facebook and they corrected that pretty quickly. It is just the means of transmission for a news story. Back to Dan's point about it being less persuaded than ever that this is the future of news. I agree. I don't think it's the future of news. It is the current of the spread of information, be it right or wrong. So you have this rush, this kind of instinct that is brought out in people about Twitter to be the first 
And the first is not always good. Being first to something is not always advisable. You could be totally wrong, Mm -hmm. but you're first and congratulations, I guess. But it, it just, the whole Hunter Biden laptop story, that part of this just confirms to me that this is not as important as people think it is. Also, because I've never been able to understood the political uh, narrative part of the Hunter Biden laptop story that I was supposed to extract from it, or at least the suppression of all of this. I'm, I, I'm baffled that anybody thinks this would have changed if only Twitter wasn't suppressing the New York Post story. It would have changed the outcome of the election. I don't think there is a single person out there who was being persuaded by the lack of spread of that story to vote one way or another if that if they weren't already convicted they were voting that way so i'm i'm just amazed by how little i think all of this actually matters and i hope that more people have that takeaway and that we don't have to listen to the people anymore who make these preposterous arguments about how Twitter is the new digital public square and all of that. And they're always made by people. I've said this before in this program. I'm going to say it again. They're always made by people who would die of embarrassment if they lost their blue check mark. who had, they have personally invested way more importance and meaning in this microblogging website than the vast majority of the rest of the world actually invests in it. And if you're the kind of person who thinks that what is shared and said on Twitter is really the new public square and it matters all of that much, you're the one who has a problem. You are the one who is mistaken, not everybody else who thinks that this is just not all that big of a deal. So this is how it's set up. <clears throat> I mean, think about it. I mean, you, you, what, 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 what are the people you engage with? They are people you follow or your followers. This sounds like a new religious movement, a sort of cult. <laughs> I'm reminded of you know the, you know the great Who album, Tommy. You know when he has the the the, the uh, you know the, the end of the of the album. You know, it's, you know his followers arrive at Tommy's holiday camp, and he says, you know, welcome to the camp. Uh, you know, welcome to the camp. Uh, you all know why you're here. My name is Tommy, and I became aware this year. And it's this notion that it's set up for it to appear as if, you know, everyone here wants to hear what you say. The, 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 what's, what's, the expectation is everyone is waiting for you to pronounce, and you pronounce, and then all of your followers receive your message. Well, regardless of throttling or anything like that, that is not how it works. Um, that is just not how it works, even if you are not being throttled, um, that's just the illusion that everyone buys into and particular media personalities seem to buy into. They seem to think that this reflects their reach. Uh, Megan McArdle has written on this where she talks about how little traffic Twitter actually drives to news stories. And, you know, she is someone who is very active on Twitter, writes for The Washington Post, links to her pieces, and she's very transparent like – The reason I do this is more social convention among journalists than actually driving traffic to my actual news stories. Um, And, you know, folks buy into this illusion and they get sucked into this. And it's mostly ranting 
back and forth. There's some information shared, but a lot of times it's people in a rush to be first, embarrassing themselves, discrediting themselves. You know, these are people who are supposed to be experts in the field. And what do we learn about them? We learn about all their political biases, their strange personal hobbies, their uh, opinions on, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, some of which are very bizarre. You get, uh, you know, their private theories of how Vladimir Putin is influencing world elections or, you know, uh, you know, conspiracy theories about the deep state or President Trump or all of this stuff. And it basically incentivizes people to overshare and create more noise than signal. Um, and it's just uh, – and this sort of story built around – I mean, you, let's look at the Taibi threat. So the Taibi thread, the first thread, was about the Hunter Biden laptop story. And two of the interesting revelations in that are evidently uh, someone in the Biden campaign requested that some things in relation to the story be moderated or taken down. Now, there's an awful lot on that laptop that's salacious, that there are grounds to take it down just for obscenity reasons. Um I do not recommend Googling it, but it's very clear that there is stuff that is not suitable for children on that laptop, that is not suitable for work on that laptop. So if the requests are about those sorts of things, I'm more sympathetic to that. But there's also information about business dealings, et cetera. You know, it's it's a laptop. It's full of it's full of, you know, someone who uh, you know, put things on a computer that they should not have put things on, on that computer in all sorts of ways. Um, there was also an aside in that Twitter thread that uh, someone from President Trump's team, the White House, again, I don't know. It's not specified, made other unspecified requests for Twitter to take down, moderate, whatever, other unspecified things. Now, those are two potentially like very interesting stories that Taibi did not relay enough information for us to really evaluate what that is. What's also interesting is that when Twitter became a thing, when people started talking about Twitter as the public square, it was in the context of the Arab Spring in countries and nations that did not have a free press. Um, in which news was breaking about protests in the Middle East that would, was not being broken by conventional media, either because it did not exist in those countries or because it was being actively suppressed by those nations. Um, we have no information on how Twitter is dealing with any of this internationally. We have no information, uh, you know, that has come out so far on if, let's say, Chinese – the Chinese state is requesting anything like this. If, uh, if Modi's government in India, if things in the Russian Federation, if things in Europe, we know, you know, there are certain uh, – you know, legal norms in, let's say, Germany against Holocaust denial. There's a heavy, more heavy-handed moderation of that sort of thing in certain EU countries than there are in other places. Um, all of this would be potentially like very interesting stories, but none of that 
have I found out anything concrete from any of these? Um, Dylan got into a little bit in the Barry Weiss. You know, there were, I think, three accounts that were mentioned. Um, again, that's not enough for me to go on. Um, did, did Twitter do anything to President Trump's account prior to banning it? That, to my mind, is an extremely interesting question. Do they treat heads of state, members of governments differently than private citizens of governments? There are all sorts of interesting threads uh, that one could explore that, at least as of yet, haven't been. Um, and it's left me uh, more frustrated than satisfied in these, in these, in these revelations. Yeah, and uh, to get uh, back to Eric's point a little bit, um, that I always find it interesting. It's just like when people say, oh, so-and-so said something terrible. I find out about it because a thousand people are telling me how terrible it was. Whereas if they didn't react, I wouldn't have known about it. I wouldn't have seen the terrible thing they would have done. They wouldn't have gotten a megaphone in front of their mouth, um, and it would be far less of a problem. Well, there's a huge Streisand effect uh, with with you know things like, oh, you know, the New York Post story. Like, thankfully for them, I guess, uh, I don't think Twitter is the New York Post distribution method. <laughs> at least uh, it's at least more than Twitter, right? People could still buy the New York Post and read that story. They could still go to their website and read that story, and they did. And they heard about it getting suppressed because a million people were tweeting about it being suppressed. And so um, there is a level of unintended consequences that, makes this stuff irrelevant, even if, in principle, people should still care about a story being suppressed. It doesn't seem to work, <laughs> um, which, for good for good and ill, um, it's just, it. like I said, I think by its nature, you're just going to have toxic people doing toxic things, and there's kind of no way to cover it up entirely. I mean, the internet is a place full of uh, our worst. It, it is a mirror on humanity. Humanity is capable of great good, but we also are fallen into sin um, and subject uh, to vice and death. And you see all of that ugliness uh, on the internet as well. And Twitter is no exception. Um, I don't know that it can be an exception without really stopping to be the platform that it aspires to be. So, um, yeah, so we have we have these stories which are amazingly unsubstantiated given the the context of what they're supposed to be and it just it just comes off uh, whether intentionally or not as another tweet thread of somebody saying oh I read something and this you know here's my pet theory and like I know these are real reporters who have real evidence but like they're not sharing it you it know gives it gives <laughs> ample ground for speculation yeah but very little evidence yeah so I you know my takeaway is not to be scandalized. It's just to be even more jaded about what some people think Twitter is. I, for me, Twitter has always been I'm looking for interesting links to stuff, um, and I'm sharing, hopefully, interesting links to th st stuff, uh, stuff. Occasionally, people seem to think so. I guess I can I can say the reason I don't have more than 1,000 followers is because I was shadow banned or something. You know, This gives me a plausible excuse to, to say when my reach isn't farther. Just but, wait till your name and account show up in the next release of the Twitter files. Right, yeah. right. Um, but I don't, re I wouldn't really care and be like, well, whatever. Like, I, um, I don't, I just don't put a lot of self-worth into uh, who is liking, disliking, tweeting, retweeting the stuff I say on Twitter. There, I have 
I have like a wife and kids. <laughs> like I, you know, I have like a life that is far more important and interesting to me. I have research. I have things we do here at Acton. So I don't know. I I know that I'm supposed to be outraged. Um, I understand where some people are coming from, but uh, like a lot of things on Twitter that outrages people, this is not succeeding in outraging me. Yeah, I'm just uh, maybe we'll end it here, but I'm just reminded of the uh, Chappelle stand up special where he talked about uh, being told that people were dragging him on Twitter. And I didn't care because Twitter is not a real place. Right. I think we should all imbibe that message from Dave Chappelle and remember that Twitter is not a real place. And this story is probably not as important as people are telling you that it's supposed to be. Let's move to our second topic, which I just want to touch on because it's an update to something that we discussed last week, uh, which is Jimmy Lai's trial in Hong Kong for violations of the national security law was supposed to start on December 1st. It's delayed until uh, December 13th. Um, large speculation that it is going to be delayed once again because leader, uh, the, the chief executive of Hong Kong's government has appealed to Beijing uh, for clarification on whether a UK barrister, human rights attorney Tim Owen, can represent Jimmy in his national security law trial. The latest development, however, is there was a sentencing for a fraud conviction. The, the nature of this fraud conviction is connected to um, a, a leasing issue with his newspaper, Apple Daily, where uh, he uh, was running a private consultancy out of the same building where Apple Daily is. <clears throat> the exact nature of why this is a problem is, I assume, related to specificities of Hong Kong law that I don't fully understand because it doesn't seem to be all of that big of a deal. To me, uh, he was sentenced to a little over five years for that charge while he is now awaiting trial on the national security law charges. Uh, I was just uh, in uh, at the University of Notre Dame for a, a screening. Victoria Wee, who is in the film, who's a professor there, who is um, a, a native Hong Konger, uh, did make the point about how uh, so much of this is uh, just completely expected, um, even the conviction in the national security law trial. One of the reasons why you're actually seeing a lot of the Apple Daily execs, I think there were five execs from Apple Daily who have uh, pled out and agreed to testify against Jimmy in the national security law trial. And as she explained it, one of the reasons for that is um, nothing is going to change the outcome for Jimmy. Uh, he is going to be convicted and probably given a life sentence. So all that matters to those individuals is, you know, which category of sentencing for the level of severity of your national security law violations are you going to fall into? And agreeing to plead out at a lower level and getting a lesser sentence in exchange for your testimony changes nothing of Jimmy's outcome and changes everything about the outcome for those individuals. Which is not entirely dissimilar from the way that the justice system in the United States operates as people uh, – they attorneys or the government will work their way up to the bigger fish by getting the smaller ones, getting them to flip and testify against. So that, that even that part is not uh, all that unheard of um, except for the – you know, the part of it being a foregone conclusion that this conviction is going to happen. Um, I'll, I'll throw it open for any comments on this but five years for this uh, – this kind of fraud conviction is 
I mean, to me, I, I have no set of expectations for what the sentence should or could have been, but it certainly seems excessive and in keeping with the way that, um, you know, Jimmy is being treated. And I also saw, I will share this last note too, um, this uh, statement that was at the Hong Kong Free Press this morning, uh, uh, media tycoon Jimmy Lai's jailing, quote, nothing to do with press freedom, says Hong Kong after U.S. deems trial unfair and unjust, which is just nonsense. It is just Utter nonsense. So, I mean, to to get to relate this to our previous conversation about Twitter, you want to know what suppression of free speech looks like. Look at Hong Kong and Jimmy Lai and what happened to Apple Daily. Um, they had a free press and now they do not. Um, nothing at all of the same kind is happening with Twitter, a company, internally having a policy about what they do or don't want to elevate. Um, we can complain of it being unfair. And certainly if there's any um, dishonest messaging, that's certainly something that should be investigated as far as Twitter goes. But this is what it looks like in China, in Hong Kong, um, where people are not allowed to report in a normal newspaper the news from whatever perspective they happen to have. Um, where a man uh, who all he did was stand up for the laws, the rights and freedoms they already have, um, is now looking at the rest of his life, spending it behind bars. Um, and his family being targeted, his friends, his coworkers. Um, and the foregone conclusion side of this is actually everything. Um, it's true that, you know, if there's like a big drug boss or whatever, you know, in, in a, a free country, people, of course, try to get the lower... Uh, cronies to to flip on them, so then you have a stronger case against the the big Kahuna or whatever. Um, sorry if these meta these I don't know why these weird metaphors are coming to me, but um, but you need to have rule of law. You need to have uh, due process, um, and and the assumption in this case, at least, is that there's not going to be that. Um, so the people who are flipping. Uh, Jimmy Lai, it's ultimately a coerced uh, confession and coerced, um, you know, uh, testimony. Um, you can't trust the reliability of that when somebody is given two terrible options. Either you get punished in this way or you get punished in that way. But we all know this guy's getting convicted, um, even though all he did, once again, was stand up for what was legal in Hong Kong uh, for his entire life. Um uh, it, you know, that that ends up with, you know, a very deliberate miscarriage of justice. Um, and that is the foregone conclusion um, that is motivating this. Everyone knows there will not be justice. Um, so they are acting on the basis of survival, um, which I think is very understandable. People should have sympathy for those who are acting in that way, although I would hope that they would stand on principle. But um, it's this is this is a situation where justice is absent. So it's not only... Uh, freedom of the press, which I think is absolutely central, as you as you pointed out, um, but just the the at the most basic level, if you don't have rule of law, you can't have any other right or freedom on top of that. And uh, this is uh, orderly demonstration of the absence of that <laughs> by the Chinese. There's a real question as to, in my mind, you know, what are the purposes of these lesser charges? And I think I think Eric got to it in that what these lesser charges and this conviction allows the Chinese government to say 
is that Jimmy Lai was sentenced for something that is not an issue of press freedom. And that is something that people need to push very strongly against. Um, if you look at the reasons these charges were brought, um, you know, that's the reason is to provide plausible deniability on the surface that this is not about press freedom. This is not about the national security law. That trial is coming. Um, and that trial is one that if you look at the future of Hong Kong and the future of freedom in China, there are two distinct sets of threats. One is this national security law, which we've talked a lot about, which is very broad and can sweep you up for all sorts of things. But there are all sorts of indirect methods as well that the regime can pursue uh, alongside of this. Um, and we're seeing that strategy with Jimmy. We're seeing that they are tagging him directly on these issues in the forthcoming trial, but they will use and exploit anything outside of that to also enforce this sort of silence among folks. And this is what those, the, the message that those plea deals signal as well. This is about establishing a level of control and suppression of free speech in Hong Kong um, through a, a lawless legal process. And uh, it should be incredibly concerning to uh, international observers. And, uh, you know, this makes it, I think, more urgent that uh, people in the West need to speak up because it is getting increasingly difficult for Hong Kongers themselves to speak in the face of this sort of onslaught. Let's move to our final topic uh, for today, which uh, we're rapidly approaching Christmas. And <clears throat> I wanted to spend a moment just mulling over the idea of, uh, you see this pop up every year, is Christmas become over-commercialized? And I, I feel like the answer to this question can be yes and no. Um, in some ways, certainly, yes, it, it is over-commercialized, but I, I, the, immediately where my brain goes after that is the, um, the, the internet meme of the person uh, you know, holding closed the lips of the person who's talking and saying, shh, let people enjoy things. <laughs> um, so in a way, I just like, I'm not, I'm kind of nonplussed. I feel similarly about this as I feel about Twitter, although there are always people every year that are fit to be tied about <clears throat> how we lose the true meaning of Christmas in the over-commercialization and the idea of it being about things that you buy for other people. Um, but it is the kind of thing that people do derive joy from. And I don't think this means that we've lost the entire meaning of Christmas altogether. So I feel this is a simple answer to that question, but I don't know that it requires, at least in my mind, a much more complicated answer than all of that, than to say that, yes, there are certain things about the American way of life that go to excess in a way that is probably not good, but it is also not the catastrophe that people sometimes want to make it out to be. Yeah, I mean, I think... COVID did a lot to kind of cool down like the Black Friday craziness as well. 
Um, I didn't hear of anyone getting trampled at a Walmart this year, so that's good. Um, I, you know, I, I certainly think people can get carried away, right? But that's that's true anywhere, anytime. It is unfortunate that it it is the occasion for getting carried away uh, with consumerism. Um, is the nativity of our Lord and God and Savior Jesus Christ? Um, we of course want. Uh, the actual meaning of the day, the greatest gift of all being God sending his son um, to, for our salvation. Um, that's that's the meaning of it. Um, but if you look at that story, um, when Jesus is, you know, still a baby, probably maybe, you know, two or whatever, um, these three wise men, uh, the, the, the Magi, come from the east and they bring gold frankincense, myrrh. These are lavish, extravagant gifts fit for a king, and rightly so, given who they were bringing them to. But still, like, there is there is a gift-giving tradition, even from the Christmas story in the Bible. Um, that is a part of it. And I think we can you, can, you can participate in that viciously, where it's all about, I want this, even if it's, I want this for someone I care about. But, you know, there used to be I remember many years ago there were, you know, moms fighting over tickle me elmos and you know stuff like that. People people were getting vicious and dirty about it. You know, the um, original Cabbage Patch doll, the the one that set off all of the impossible to find uh, in the yeah. 1980s. Yeah, right. Um, so yes, you know, things can really get out of hand if you let it, but it also is this great opportunity to to be generous, to be generous with people you love, to be generous with, with charities. Uh, you know, this is a great time. These are Advent is a traditional fasting time, uh, in Christian liturgical calendars. And during those times like Lent Advent, you're also supposed to be almsgiving. So think of, think of, uh, you know, worthy charitable causes you can contribute to. And people do, um, statistically, I mean, this is a big end of year Christmas fundraising drive for a lot of nonprofits. Um, and that's with good reason. People, people do, you know, think about other people this time of year. Um, and then the other side of that is uh, it's a time to appreciate the abundance that we have um, that we often take for granted. But, you know, if you've been working hard and saving and now you you say, okay, this is, I'm going to let myself be generous. Um, that can be a really great thing. Um, and so I don't know. I, I, I'm all for asceticism. You know, I just mentioned fasting and almsgiving. I hope people are trying to do that. Um, and I'm all for um, worship and liturgy. Go to church on Christmas. It's on a Sunday this year. So, uh, you know, almost no excuse. Uh, what were you doing anyway? Um, go to church. Um, sing the, the traditional carols, all that kind of stuff. Have a great day with your family, with your friends. Um, and, yeah, let yourself love. Let yourself relax. Um uh, we have a very busy world that has produced this abundance, and I think it's great that we take a break and appreciate it every year. We probably, you know, we we ought to we ought to do more uh, to to get on the commercialism bandwagon. We need we need a Christmas in July too. Um, every car dealer seems to have one, uh, but you know, like really, we need we need something like this. Celebrate Pentecost in the same way or whatever. Um, just to take another break. Let's all get a week off. Let's all buy each other gifts. Let's all spend meaningful time with family and friends. Um, so it can be, it can be over commercialized. People can, can 
you know, if if you're already vicious ahead of time, it's sort of like social media. It's sort of like a lot of things in our culture. Um, it it can shine a mirror on your heart. Hopefully, you know, be like be like Scrooge in a Christmas Carol. If you're seeing a bad reflection in the mirror, hey, you know what? Also, is a great Christian thing to do. Uh, practice repentance. So maybe work on changing your heart and making that your gift to others around you as well. I also uh, I, I do want to note that I appreciate that people can still have a sense of humor about all of this too, which is why I'm not worried about the over commercialization part of it. Um, and I, I, I agree with pretty much everything that you said, Dylan, but I, I you reminded me of, um, I saw this uh, a week or two ago that I think it is perfectly fun and mocking of the over-commercialization part of it. And one of the most absurd of the over-commercialization parts of it, which is the idea that normal human beings in uh, married relationships would buy the other a car without their the other person knowing yeah. about it, um, which is just bananas and probably the behavior of a psychopath a if they flag. actually do that. Yeah. But I saw one of those, you know, you see those in this house uh, signs that people put out with all these kind of, um, you know, tautologies and bumper sticker phrases. But the one that I saw that I just found delightful is in this house, we celebrate Happy Honda Days, Lexus December to Remember, Toyotathon, <laughs> Mercedes Winter Event, Chevy Red Tag Sales Event. December is about savings. <laughs> Merry Christmas commercialization is over. When Eric proposed this topic, I realized that I had not heard about Christmas outside of the context of religious observance, family, and friends. I have not. I did not know the Toyotathon was happening until Eric just mentioned it. We live in. That, a, that's because you're a happy Honda Days family. Admit it. <laughs> I, 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 I do. I do have a Honda. <laughs> um, however, we have never lived in a time when it has been easier in modern American life to remove yourself from the commercialization of Christmas. I do not see television advertisements. I do not hear radio advertisements. I do not go to the mall. All of these things are things that it would have been very, very hard to do Christmas circa 1988. Um, instead, I get to, as I did yesterday, read uh, you know Luke's gospel account of the birth of Christ and, of course, the gifts of the Magi. I also got to make several dozen meat pies to give to family and friends yesterday afternoon. And uh, I will enjoy delivering those. Uh, now the problem is, is, is thinking about what to include in the Christmas cards that will be written to friends this week. What will be cooked for Christmas Eve dinner? I have to get the order for, uh, for the meat in very soon. And uh, this is... Um, this is a life that is open to all of you. So if you are feeling that you're being overwhelmed by the commercialization of Christmas, just look away. There's a lot of other things you can draw your attention to. Um, do that. Enjoy the holiday season in its fullness. Reach out to family. Reach out to friends. Go through your closet. Figure out what you don't need, what you could give to others. 
Take a look at your checking account. Look at that balance. If you get a Christmas bonus, if you're blessed with that, look into organizations where you can share that with others and have yourselves a merry little Christmas. Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, we thank you for that. But we encourage you to look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind, or you can just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Dylan. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. Anybody who watched um, uh, Man vs. Food, too, it was always, like, the eating a ton of stuff, like, I can understand. It was always the challenges that had, like, ghost pepper extract in it, where it was just, like, it's all heat. There's no flavor. Right, right. You're just destroying your mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not fun. Right. Why would anybody do this? Mm-hmm.